On this special episode of the Green Shoots podcast, we're joined by Tom Barris, our client, former professional cyclist and director sportif of national cycling team NFTO and founder of Spatswear, makers of premium cycling kit inspired by countless wet Yorkshire bike rides. Tom joins Appleyard Lee's solicitors and trademark attorneys, Rob Cumming and Chris Hull, to chat about evolution of Spatswear's products and brand. From dining room prototypes to bringing to market innovative cycling gear loved by professionals and ordinary cyclists alike. Spatswear's journey has been fueled by passion and necessity, with intellectual property an important factor in its growth. Now over to Tom, Rob and Chris. Hello. So we're joined on the podcast this morning by Tom Barris, who is a former professional cyclist. He's now a startup business owner, and we're going to have a chat today about IP in cycling and the transition from sports to business. So hello, Tom. Good morning. We've also got Chris Hull, who is a solicitor and chartered trademark attorney in our Cambridge office. Chris has recently moved from our Leeds office. I am Robert Cumming. I'm in the Leeds office. So let's go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Morning, Tom. Let's go. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Rob. How are you? Very well. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah. You're our first celebrity, Tom. I don't know about that. If you want to tell us a little bit about your history as a cyclist because okay history as a cyclist right well yeah that starts right at the very beginning being born into a cycling family granddad was a bike rider my dad was a a pro bike rider um national champion uh won a a, i think he's got the record for the most ever professional victories for a british rider wow yeah so i was kind of born into it and never forced into it never pushed into it i just grew up watching dad through the barriers watching him ride and win races in in the 80s when i was a kid and it's just all i ever really had a passion for so i was born into this family that mum mum was a teacher dad was a pro bike rider and maybe once or twice a week and then at the weekends we used to all jump in the car and go to a bike race and that was dad's job and it was perfectly normal to me and then, you know, his income was dependent on performance. So, you know, one year we'd have plenty of money and the next year we might not have so much. And that's that was just kind of normal to me. When was your first your first race then? I remember doing a race at Rudding Park in Harrogate when I was six or seven. But I was, you know, I was really, yeah, I was, I was really, really young. And then first proper races were at Southport in, um, what was I, was about 11 or 12. And we used, to, we used to go to Southport in March and do the juvenile races that Bill Bradley put on, Southport Road Club. So you've got the pedigree, you've got the passion, clearly. I've got the pedigree, I've got the passion. I didn't quite, the the, uh, the talent gene didn't quite pass through <laughs> that well, unfortunately. So yeah, I had to work quite hard and train quite hard for the wins to come. But you had a pretty successful career by a normal person's measure, I would say. As I say, it's all it's all I ever wanted to do. Mum and dad encouraged me to go and get an education. So, you know, I tried my best at school, did okay, was, re- was really good at design and technology. And then because of that, I wanted to go and be an engineer. So I went to do an engineer's apprenticeship straight out of A-levels. Did a year of that as a tool maker and then went to uni to do industrial design. And that's where everything kind of starts tying together. So I got a degree in industrial design from Loughborough. And then after that, once I got my education, and then went straight out to Belgium to try and make it as a pro. So that's where the cycling story kind of began. The difficulty was in that period, there wasn't really 
like a professional scene in the UK. The, the pro scene in the UK kind of goes up and down. In in sort of 97, 98, it wasn't very strong. So that's why I had to go and live in Belgium to try and make this career as a pro. You know, it's to get from being a British rider that can win races. And at the time I was winning a lot of races, you know, looking back, it wasn't that difficult to win. But then to go and race in Belgium, it was just a whole new level. How have you seen the cycling scene change over the years, particularly, I suppose, in, in Yorkshire, but in, in the UK generally? In the UK generally, there tends to be a good racing scene. So the criteriums tend to be good. I mean, this is obviously you know pre-coronavirus. There's a great criterium scene and there's quite a good road scene. But then obviously that's kind of grassrootsy stuff. But then obviously when British Cycling started having a lot of success and then Sky came in and started having mega success, the very, very top end of British Cycling is extremely strong you know, Wiggins, Froome, Grant Thomas, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's kind of a gap at the bottom. So if you were an up-and-coming rider in the last 10 years, if you don't get supported by BC or the Rainer Fund, um, it's quite difficult to then make it through to a position where you can try and make it as a professional. And then you've got the popularity of cycling generally, don't you? I mean, I said, I've, I came from a, a cycling background as well with my brother and you obviously with your dad. But it was never the most popular thing to do. I, you know, if I set out the, my front door with Lycra on at the age of 14 in Chorley, people were looking <laughs> yeah. at you a little strangely thinking, what's, what's he doing? <laughs> Whereas, you know, the way I see it is after the, the, the Tour de France, the Grand Depart in Yorkshire, that was a stimulus for the boom in cycling, really. I mean, if you agree, massively so. Yeah, massively. Everybody knows of the Tour de France, don't they? And that's kind of the pinnacle of the sport. And we've basically had the Tour de France, as in the Grand Depart, and then the Tour of Yorkshire now four or five times, actually on our doorstep, which is brilliant. And we haven't, you know, we haven't had it to that level before. And for me personally, that last year as a rider in 2015, I, I was lucky enough to get to ride the Tour of Yorkshire. And it was just a whole new level. It was like, right, these are fully-fledged Tour de France riders. That made a huge difference, didn't it? That made a huge difference, the popularity. And, you know, it was already, I think cycling was already becoming slightly more popular. More people were commuting into work, I think. There was a few things, though, I think. So I, I'm a non-cyclist. I was a footballer till I was 32, 33. And then I bought a bike. And Chris, you remember when I bought it uh, on the Cycle to Work scheme uh, and brought it into the office. But there was the Olympics before that. And and didn't Bradley Wiggins win the Tour de France, like the first British rider to do it for a long time? And then there was the Olympics the same year. So all of these things kind of came together and really brought a lot of new people in. People like me, maybe, who would not even considered spending up to £1,000 on a bike before, suddenly think, hang on a minute, I can do that. Let's have a, a go at it. So, so that's a really exciting time for you to have been uh, involved in the scene and, and uh, a professional cyclist on the scene. How long did you think you would continue being a professional cyclist? Were you ever looking ahead more than 12 months? The period where I was a full-time bike rider, the time when I was living in Belgium, for example, I was kind of in this position where I was on a professional team, I was on a UCI team. And we rode with pro riders day in, day out. But I wasn't getting paid very much. I think I was getting 200 euros a month, something like that. So I was funding my cycling with building websites and doing some coaching. So I was kind of right training in the morning and then working in, in the afternoon. 
And at the time, that was quite challenging when a lot of the people I was training with were, you know, fully paid, earning quite a lot of money as top pro riders. But looking back now, I'm kind of quite grateful for that because because I was like a tear down from them. I had to kind of really fight and work and earn my own money in order to pay the rent. And I think that kind of gave me the skills when I retired from cycling to be able to push on and start a company. But I wouldn't have guessed that at the time. I was just earning enough to be able to eat. You know, yeah, you know, in answer to your question, the scene was very, very strong, but I was kind of at that level where I needed to fund my own cycling. I was lucky to have the skills to do that in the, you know, with my design background, but then I couldn't quite break through to that point where I was going to be earning enough money for it to be fully paid profession and then retire from it. So you've got this background in design and an interest in engineering. It's almost like a dual career you've run. What was it? that happened what was the catalyst for you saying right you know what let's do it let's start a business let's come up with some products where was your inspiration the design of our spats overshoes the inspiration of that was when i was out racing in belgium i did a lot of my training through january and february from keithley from my mum and dad's where i was living at the time in steeton near keithley and i was working part time i was working tuesday wednesday friday so so the rest of the time i was going out doing five or six hours a day by myself in the Yorkshire dales rain or shine cuz i didn't have a choice and i just got sick of getting cold wet feet <laughs> so if you, when you're riding a bike if you ride through a puddle not only does the rain hit your feet and your legs but the water from the puddles off the road splashes up and hits you on the shins and then the water soaks into your tights and goes down into your overshoes right so i'm sat you know, I'm three hours from home, middle of the Yorkshire Dales, with just freezing cold water spraying up on my shins. And I'm thinking, why has no one designed an overshoe that stops this water hitting your shins and running down your, into your shoes? So went home, did some drawings, made some prototypes out of rubber from motorbike inner tubes, believe it or not. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, went out and tested them, and they were absolutely useless because the the, the the neoprene we needed kind of wasn't around then. Did you blow them up, Tom, before you before you started using them? Yeah, they were nice and light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so you've you've just sourced some motorcycle inner tubes and you've, you've yeah. sort of cut them up in cut them up, glued them together, kitchen scissors or whatever. Exactly, and- kitchen scissors, um, rubber glue made these sort of rudimentary boots to put over my cycling shoes and they were absolutely rubbish. So that idea <laughs> kind of got it kind of got shelved then because it was like the, the, the materials weren't there. This is 2006. The materials weren't really there to make something good enough. But I still had the idea and I still had the drawings. So then going back to your question, I managed a pro cycling team in 2015 called NFTO, British-based pro cycling team, which was absolutely brilliant. It was kind of the end of my cycling career. And did a year as a DS, which was mega and then, but then we were sponsored by Aberdeen Asset Management. They're obviously a huge company. And then January 2017, they pulled out. So then I went from earning a decent amount of money managing a pro cycling team, living a really nice life, to thinking, right, what do I do? I've got a pregnant wife, big mortgage, two cats, and absolutely no income. So the 1st of January 17, I got the drawings out again. And that was it. Wow. And uh, the drawings came out. Went down to Leeds Market, I bought some sheets of neoprene, I bought a sewing machine, I bought some glue, and I just made patterns for these overshoes. I thought, right, I'm going to do this. I have no income, I need to I need to start doing this. It's a great idea. And I just made prototype after prototype on the, on the dining room table. That's interesting, that 
it was the technology and the materials which had just developed between you doing the motorcycle inner tubes and uh, you deciding on 1st of January 17, I need to do this. Were you aware that the neoprene had developed or was it just like, let's go down to the market, see what see what there is? There must be some some way to do it. I was aware of wetsuit material and I was aware that the materials were there, but I wasn't aware how different the materials are. So whether you've got one that's like a smooth skin or whether you've got one that with a with like a, a tough nylon cover on and they all perform differently. They all have different properties with regards to thermal insulation and hydrophobic properties and you can get really cheap neoprene it just you know it just wouldn't work but when you if you use a really high quality neoprene it's like wearing a second skin you don't know you're wearing it so i made these prototypes and maybe sort of prototype 10 i went out on the bike with them on underneath my tights so no one could see them i went out in the driving rain came back four hours late with dry feet warm dry feet and i said to my missus live i'm like right well i'm on something here these are brilliant and you know what you know what, keeping them under your tights uh, is important from a patent point of view because it it means that the secret... Very much so. No one knew I had them on. So you knew at the end of that ride, hang on a minute, I've got something good here. I'm onto something. I'm onto something. Because the big difference to yours, was this this the case with the first prototype as well, that they were quite high, very high on the, on the leg, you know, have, which is very different to all, very much all, so. all no, over shoes that had gone before. No one's, no one's done that. And I couldn't work out why, but it's good for two reasons. Firstly, like I said earlier, the rain off your front wheel, it hits your shin. So with these, if the rain just runs off your shin and, and back onto the road. But secondly, from an insulation point of view, you've all those big blood vessels in your, in your lower limbs. And if you can keep, it's like lagging your pipes to stop your, your boiler from freezing. If you insulate your lower leg, forgetting your, your feet totally, if you insulate that lower leg, your feet stay warm because the blood's warm that hits your feet. And that's fundamental to our design. And no one's done it. And that's the case well, with or without mud guards. Because I think when you ride in a group, people might be listening to this going, well, why can't mud guards just do the same thing? And mud guards will prevent a bit of rain coming up to you, you know, onto your shins, but they're not going to stop everything. And then when you're in a group, when you've got riders side by side, water is spraying everywhere. Since I designed these, I haven't needed a front mud guard. So I don't have a front. I mean, I'm a traditional Yorkshire cyclist. I've got I've got a, a rear mud guard mud flap on my bike, but I haven't used a front mud guard for four years now because this spats design just renders a front mudguard absolutely useless, which is good for someone who puts his bike in the car every, every couple of days. Yeah, if you've got mudguards on your bike, you, your bike doesn't, you can't take the wheels off and kind of fold your bike up into the boot anymore because the mudguards make your bike as big as the whole bike with wheels on. Absolutely. So now the front, the front mudguard's gone. From a training point of view, that probably saves you 20 watts of effort because that front mudguard is extremely unaerodynamic. You know, so you're kind of helping yourself in various different ways. It was uh, the Duke of Wellington who invented the Wellington boot in a similar story of evolution. So I think, Tom, you were actually ahead of your time, a bit like Leonardo da Vinci inventing the helicopter and so on. You were ahead of your time and you've come up with these ideas, but it just took that little spark and the circumstances around you, your life, to actually bring everything together and say, okay, this is what the market wants. This is what, what people want. The timing was right. Looking back now, the timing was right. But I started, you know, I did these designs and I, I started this company absolutely out of necessity. I didn't have a choice because I was, you know, I was unemployed. 
I had to start a company or, you know, go down to the job center. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did, but I was kind of determined from the, from the word go that it was going to work because, you know, these designs were good and no one's done it before. And so I think a lot of our listeners then would be thinking, well, probably similar scenario, you know, how at that stage, when you are at that point in your life, you've got this idea, you've got a design or an invention that you have in your mind, you've drawn it, you've got some basic materials. But the next step, I suspect, is investment to get that product moving, to get it to the stage where you can market it, you've got a viable product. And that's, that's something I'd be interested in hearing about, Tom, how you went from that stage of, okay, well, I've got an idea, but how did you then bring it to market to the product it is today? So that this is where it gets interesting, really. So then I've got this, I, I've got the idea, I've got the drawings, I've got the, the prototypes with the fabric from Leeds Market, which are working well. I then went out on a Wednesday ride in the rain, so a typical 10 o'clock from Lawnswood job. Went out to meet the lads as they would every Wednesday and it was just chucking it down with rain. And the only other rider out was Alistair Brownlee, Olympic champion triathlete. So I'm out with Alistair. We did our normal winter loop round Burns or something like that near Grassington. And I've got these overshoes on that are kind of hidden from view. Sat next to Alistair, chatting away. And we went along the road between Ilkley and Addingham. And there's always a flood on this piece, on this piece of road. I rode through the flood. Alistair rode through it next to me. I came out of the flood, warm, dry feet. And Alistair just kind, kind of looked down and went, what are you wearing here? You know, what, what have you got on your feet? And I said, oh, I've got these, these things on that I've made. And he started quizzing me and he said, do you, do you want a business partner? So he'd obviously twigged that I was onto something here. And we kind of did a deal that day. So then Spats kind of grew to two people. But Alistair, there's no one trains more or harder than Alistair. You know, and that's kind of, that's the sort of bloke he is. And that's why he is the man that he is has the success that he does. So then there's two of us involved. Alistair put some investment in. And then the third person to come in to become involved was a guy called John Wood, who was my employer at NFTO Pro Cycling, ex-SAS soldier, a big friend of mine. And then, so then all of a sudden it became three of us. John liked the idea and then it became three of us. And that's where the investment came from. And, you know, without their help, we, I wouldn't have been, well, the company wouldn't have been where it is today. But we, we're not talking a lot of money. We're talking just enough money to kind of further the designs, further the prototypes, and then buy the first batch. Yeah, so so basically you've got enough investment to test it in the market, I suppose. You've taken the plunge. These other guys have obviously been impressed, but they've got on board with you, which is fantastic. And then you've gone for it. So, what happens? You set up your website. How do you how do you sell things? Yeah, well, how do you sell things? I mean, l- luckily, this is again, it's how it all sort of fell into place. Luckily, I'd funded myself for the last decade by building websites. So, building an e-commerce website wasn't difficult for me. Managed to do that, not a problem. Got some good photography, which is really important. Put an order in for the product. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. We must have gone through must have had 60 prototypes because we didn't want a zip on these. It was quite important that the overshoes fit really well, were really sleek and aerodynamic aerodynamic as well as being waterproof and warm. So that took a lot of doing. We worked with an absolutely premium manufacturer and then we just bought a batch and then just started selling. Who did you start selling to? Obviously, from an outsider perspective, I remember first seeing 
your overshoes and they stand out don't they they do stand out um, they, they stand out and you're intrigued by them when you see them and you know personally i was intrigued and it didn't take me very long before I, I, I bought my my own pair from my own personal perspective then when i was wearing them other people were intrigued yeah and they said what what are you wearing yeah you know? well it's that search isn't it for dry feet it's like such Absolutely. a desperate search. If I spend a bit of money, will I have dry feet? Oh, I'll try it. Yeah. I'll try it. Yeah. And they do look, you know, they did, when they came out, they did look weird. The same as I imagine cycling tights would have looked weird or, or in the eighties, you know, a hard shell helmet looked weird, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I remember being a kid not wanting to ride in a helmet because it looked stupid. Well, now you, now you look weird without one, don't you? Yeah. Cliche, form follows function. If you want something to work this well, they kind of need to look like this, but also because of the materials, they actually work really well next to your skin. So if you know if you were a later doctor and you didn't like the look of an overshoe up to your knees, you can just put your tights over them and no one knows you're wearing them. How did you get from selling a, a few pairs of these to what is an international company and you sell them globally, don't you? What do you think was the what was the secret there, Tommy? I think the key is the product has to be good and the product has to be strong. And it has to be a solution to a problem or a unique solution to a problem. And we sell that. I design each item along with Alistair and our now partner, Ivan. The way we look at things is everything has to be revolutionary. So we're not just going to bring out a pair of cycling tights that everyone else has done just to kind of up the volume or up the profit or sell cycling tights. We wouldn't do that. We try and solve problems that no one's attacked properly. And I think... If you ride a bike X hours a week in the cold and rain and buying some overshoes off us makes that more pleasurable, um, more comfortable and ultimately makes you ride longer and faster, then you're going to buy it. You're going to spend the money, aren't you? It's like you would always, you know, you'd spend a hundred quid on a saddle that makes your riding more comfortable. You know, so I think the product has to be good and, you know, I'm pleased to say the the product is good. But then the right people need to be seen wearing the kit. And I think a lot of that, you know, we're very fortunate that straight away, a lot of the top pro riders just started buying our kit. And that that is a testament to how good it is, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got, we've got world tour riders are buying our kit. I'm not exaggerating. They're buying our kit every day. And then you see it, you know, you'll see, let's say you watch Milan San Remo in the driving rain. And you'll just spot someone wearing your kit and you think, hang on a minute, this guy, I'm not going to mention any names, but this guy has bought our kit and he scrubbed the logo off it with a, with a Sharpie because he's sponsored by another clothing brand. <laughs> and he's chosen to wear our kit because he can then perform better than in the kit he's paid to wear. That's incredible, isn't it? That's a huge compliment, isn't it? Huge. Compliment. It's a huge compliment, but we don't, we all respect the fact that pro riders are sponsored by other brands. So we don't make a big noise about that. But when there's, let's say, and I won't mention names, when there's the Olympic champion or the world champion out training in our kit, and then they tweet that they're riding in our kit or they put an Instagram story on. And they're, I mean, we've had whole world tour teams out wrecking the Tour of Flanders and Pyro Bay all wearing our gloves and overshoes. And we don't even know they've bought it. They might buy it from our distributor, Connie Mex in Benelux or a, a shop in France or wherever. They buy it because it's the best kit. And that must be an amazing feeling, actually, Tom, you know, to see your products on the feet of these pro cyclists wrecking the tour of flanders you know that is a how does that feel for you oh it's mega it's mega yeah it's brilliant it really is brilliant because i kind of knew that 
someone had to design this kit because I was sick of training and racing in kit from big brands that just wasn't good enough. And it was kind of made to a price for a profit. And it's easy to turn out kit like that. We could we could make standard pair of gloves tomorrow for, for a fiver and, and sell them for 50 quid and you'd make money. But it wouldn't be designed from necessity. It would just be selling a pair of gloves. I think that what kind of hit it home was at the World Champs in Harrogate. Yeah, well, we on that for that weekend. It was that's where we launched the kit for that season, and we did a stand at the Yorkshire Expo, and then we um, we had a spat stand at one of our uh, partner retailers' wheelbase actually at the World Champs, and it was chucking it down all day, and we had you know the best riders in the world queuing up to buy the kit for the for the race the next day. And I'm just, no, I'm blown, absolutely blown away. I mean, they're not, they're not wanting it free. They're not wanting a discount. They're just wanting to have warm hands for a six-hour race the next day. Fantastic, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's such a nice thing to see. And, and I think for us as well, you know, knowing you, Tom, I've raced against you, cycled in the same groups for a number of years, and then yeah. to know you a bit more through Spatswear. Um, you know, it's, I follow you on Instagram. And for me personally as well, I think it's always superb. And it fills me with a sense of pride to see clients you know when you are posting these pictures of your kit being worn by you know, pro athletes at the top of their game winning grand tours at the moment it's absolutely superb and what, I, what i'd love to see as well is is the evolution of your brand you know as it started off with the overshoe but now you've moved into a, a wider collection of products as well and you're, you mentioned your gloves and that's one of the newer editions isn't it it is we've three three models of gloves now so how have you how have you found that then? Do, you know, you've gone through. Obviously, you, you had the idea of overshoes in two thousand and six. So, how are you finding now developing that idea, the concept, but applying it to different types of clothing? Some of the kit shares the same fundamental ideas. So, if you look at our gloves as an example, they all have a long cuff, and that's going back to the overshoes. That's to insulate all those blood vessels that are in your wrist, which which I can't believe no one's really done. <laughs> yeah. So our neos neoprene rain glove and our race glove and the thermos deep winter glove they all have a, a really long cuff and then the latest one the thermos which we've just launched for deep winter now they have a zip up so they're easier to get on and off but that's the same fundamental idea of you know if you can keep those blood vessels warm your hands are going to be warm so then that kind of it takes the emphasis off the actual hand area because if you put you don't want to ride a bike in a thick, heavy pair of gloves because you want to be able to feel your bike and you want to be able to feel your gear change and your brakes. But developing all this kit, it isn't a chore to me. We're not doing it because we need to bring more SKUs to the market or anything like that. I just enjoy designing the kit. It's like your your products have come from necessity, but also a passion. But your business has grown from necessity and also uh, a passion. So it's nice to see that uh, you've got the the kind of uh, the rewards when you see the GC riders and the, the best riders in the world wearing your kit. But that's almost like a byproduct of the effort that you've put in to developing this. But the reason you put the effort in is because you enjoy it and you have to do it. I do enjoy it, yeah. It all sort of, it, it's like a nice set of circumstances, which is, all nicely come together at the right time i think i've always i've always said you know if you if you do something you're passionate about you drive your own uh, success but the first and foremost you have to be passionate about it. you have to enjoy what you're doing you have to be passionate and also we're not you know we're not a, we're not a big company there's four of us there's myself alistair alice is obviously 
extremely busy. So I don't I don't hassle Alistair day to day. Alistair tests the kit because he loves it. And and he gives me, you know, he, he'll give me ideas on, on, on what an elite athlete might need. And then the third guy now, jo- John Wood's not involved anymore. John left us 18 months ago. He was too busy climbing Everest and things like that. So so John's not involved. But the third guy involved now is Ivan Eustace, who was big in consumer electronics and sold his company TNS, I think, in 2012. So between myself, Ivan, and Alistair, we own the company. And then we've got Jakob Tanowski involved now, who is our, he's our salesman. So that's the four of us, really. And we've another couple of lads, uh, Billy and Jack, doing admin. But that's it. So we're, we're quite, you know, we're a small, lean company. So where does the future take Spats? Or where do you see Spats in the future, in the next five years, maybe? In the immediate future, develop and bring out more revolutionary products. So you're firmly focused on innovation. Yeah, absolutely. In Innovation and you know we are we've got a great network of factories you know going back to the fact that we're quite a small company we're quite dynamic and we can change direction very very quickly and we can bring products to market i can have a drawing in june and have it to market by end of october which is unheard of so i'll go out you know i'll go out on my bike you know in the in the, in the rain and have an idea the drawing will go to a factory we'll do prototyping really really fast and we can bring that to market Certainly by Christmas. Right. What I mean, you touched on you touched on innovation, obviously, Tom, quite a lot. And I suppose at some point we're going to have to talk about intellectual property. So I, I I would just wonder, you know, Tom, what you know now and what you used to know about IP. What has changed, and has your knowledge about IP grown over the years, and how is that helping? Four years ago, I was a lad that raced bikes. You know, I didn't really know what IP was. You know, obviously heard of patents and reddish design and things, but it just wasn't on my radar. And then when you start designing things like this, you kind of, it's a little bit scary because you think, right, we're selling this kit now and it's great, but what can we do either before it goes to market or whenever just to try and protect our brand? Because, you know, it's really, really important. We're working extremely hard to bring products to market that are revolutionary and we don't want people to copy them. And you just, you know, luckily, you know, we knew, I, I mean, I've known of you, Chris, for years. And then Alistair introduced me to Robert. You remember we sat down in a cafe in Leeds and, and chatted about this a number of years ago. And I think the IP is absolutely fundamental to our company. And it's something that we invest in, and it's something that personally I have to put a lot of work into. So uh, you used the Apple Adley's Growth Fund actually to file a patent, That's right. which is still still pending. Yeah. So that keep off the grass and that protection offers you a bit of a head start, I suppose, on on anybody yeah. who would want to copy this this type of product. But what reassures me about your future is that you're continuing to innovate. So you've not rested on your laurels, thought, right, we've done a load of prototypes. We've got a brilliant product. We're not just going to stop there. You, you're carrying on. So the new gloves, you know, you've come out with the, the different shaped fingers and yeah. using different materials and so on. So for me, that that is the perfect sign of a business which has a future, is that it's investing in this innovation and the protection of that innovation. Yeah, and it is innovation, isn't it? And, and you, you know that a product is 
innovative when when you ride with other people and they question it you know you say you know i was out riding with your new pair of gloves the the other day and one of the riders said not seen those before he, he questioned it so you know spats uh, so they've got this really innovative technology where you can, you know, it's, it's longer on the arm. If it gets a bit colder, I can make it into the the crab claw, which keeps the, the cold out a little bit more. And he said, well, that's a, that's a great idea. You know, where do I get them from? And it's these innovative ideas that I think, you know, everyone appreciates, you know, all cyclists. We want to stay a bit warmer. We want to feel more comfortable on the bike, ride for longer. And you say it's easy for you, Tom, but I don't think it is. You know, it's not an easy feat, is it? I think you underestimate your skill set there and actually you know it's these ideas you're coming up with are groundbreaking you know and, and that's it's it's because you you're enjoying it you can tell you're obviously very talented in coming up with these ideas and it's, i don't think that's, that's an easy thing to do but it, it all stems from this background you had that we discussed earlier the passion the experience everything's come together really nicely so and it's weird i'm mean, gonna speak to my wife about this but my degree was industrial design and then I was a cyclist and then I was a web designer and you know I'm not I wasn't the best bike rider in the world and I wasn't the best web designer in the world but when you put everything together it's kind of this mix that gives me the ability to develop this kit but I think the main thing is you know I love it I love it and I just I'm not short of ideas but I mean another point is because we because the three of us myself Ivan and, and Alistair we don't have endless money so you'll see that the marketing's basically social media and it's me riding my bike, testing the kit on Instagram, doing a video. Yeah, yesterday's marketing with me on the Mimos above Paley Bridge in the driving rain, testing the kit. Now, I'm not doing that because I like being on Instagram or because I like the sound of my own voice or anything like that. I actually don't like doing it. It's just that that's what we have available. Yeah, you know, because it costs nothing, does it? Yeah. We don't, you know, we don't have a marketing budget. You know, we're a small, we're a small company. So we're in a new age, aren't we? We are in a new age, but I think people like the fact that there's someone out there amongst the elements bringing out this kit. And actually, you know, it's fairly obvious that I love it. Just going back to the, the point before, we talked about the innovation and the technological developments in the new products and the way that you test them. But what fits really neatly with that is your ability to market the products in a way which is also innovative and eye-catching or ear-catching shall we say because you've come up with a few catchphrases <laughs> which yeah. yeah you laugh not on but purpose. actually not on purpose <laughs> I but i think that 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 is a really nice way of bringing all of the different aspects of intellectual property rights together so you've got the patents to protect the technology the product's good you've got the design rights in in all the prototypes yeah. to tell people they can't do that but then you've also got these sort of trademarks i suppose yeah so if i say it's raining you're training then a lot of people will know that they're referring to spats because that's that's the catchphrase that you use isn't it it is there's a few of them yeah and they've just i mean these weren't these weren't planned or thought through and that makes it even better yeah people just seem to get a hold of it i mean People I don't know will message us on in, on Instagram and just say it's raining. I'm training. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who these people are. You know, I never met them. It's great. I mean, I'm you know, that's really nice. Isn't it? Thanks for coming is a saying that the Keithley riders would say to each other in a really sort of dry fashion. 
Yeah, but it's quite funny now, though, isn't it? It used to be, you know, this turn probably isolated to the Keithley riders. Exactly. Maybe even a little bit in Yorkshire. But now you've probably got guys over in Australia or something who are saying it because they've seen your brand. They've seen your, you've seen you say it on Instagram and it, it becomes a popular phrase for them to use. Our packaging all has hashtag thanks for coming printed on it now. Well, there's something to be said about that, isn't it? It's following your instinct. And it seems like what you're doing there, Tom, is you're following your instinct and say, no, this is, this is how I want to market my brand. This is, this is a bit of your personality coming out, maybe. Yeah, that isn't forced. No, it's human. It's not forced. That's just, yeah, that's just come from me going out training with the lads all my life. Which is exactly what everybody wants. They just want to feel part of a community. And so the fact that you have done it, you've got this pedigree of training in the, in the wet weather, people feel that they are part of the brand and they buy into it. And so brands are all about that emotional connection. So why do you buy one rather than another? Well, it's because I buy this one, even though it's identical to the other, because this has this emotional uh, message which is connected with it. So, so it's a really important point. And I think listening to this, if I was a, an entrepreneur or a startup or even indeed if I was running a multinational company thinking about how to make a success of my brand, I don't think it's one thing. You know, I'm listening to you and hearing about innovation. I think that's one, you know, having a great product. That's a first step. But then on top of that as well, you've got everything else that comes with it. You know, you've thought innovatively about your branding and your marketing. Your product's got a bit of personality about it as well you've thought about ip and how to protect your product so it doesn't seem like it's one thing it's a collection of little secrets or little tips or however you want to call it but it's it's all this coming together that has then created spatsware and has allowed the brand to to grow to the to position it is today well that's very kind thank you yeah that was really enjoyable speaking to you tom really great insights yeah brilliant Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been really interesting to learn about the journey from sport into business and to see the uh, consistency and the skills that are needed to succeed. So thanks very much for your time and we'll keep a lookout for your products in the near future. Thank you very much. And as ever, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you'd like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyardlees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com. <laughs>